G'day, it's Gus Warland here and welcome to Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shore & Partners Financial Services. In this podcast, we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport to chat about their life's journey and how they became the success that they are today. In today's episode, we are chatting to a great mate, Mark Burris. Mark Burris is one of Australia's most recognisable businessmen, extremely handsome. He's an entrepreneur, an author, media personality, and adjunct professor. Mark was a founder and chairman of Wizard Home Loans, which he sold for around about half a billion dollars back in 2004. He is now the chair of Yellow Big Road. You might recognise Mark as the host of Celebrity Apprentice Australia, or from his podcast and TV show, The Mentor. One thing Mark and I love together is the Sydney Roosters, our rugby league team, where he is on the board and making all the big calls. Mark is gritty, he's tenacious, he has a direct and just get in there and do it attitude that has led to him achieving incredible success. And of course, that success didn't come overnight. In this chat, you'll learn that Mark wasn't fed with a golden spoon. He grew up around the corner from a housing commission in Punchbowl. He really did pave his own way. Something I did find interesting about this chat with Mark was that he seemingly consistent attitude of staying in his own lane and not worrying about the people around him and what they're doing. As for all of these podcasts, Sean Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss where that money will go in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit. Let's get into our chat with Mark Burris. G'day, Mark. How are you, mate? G'day, mate. You all right? Yes, I'm well. Gee, you're looking fit. I actually probably lost a little bit too much weight recently. I don't know why. I mean, most people wait on during COVID. For some reason, I tended to lose it. But actually, my doctor said to me, he said, I just bumped him down the road. He said, mate, you okay? I said, why? He said, you, he said you're one of my ads, advertisements, you know, for my practice. He said, you look like you're a bit skinny at the moment. But yeah, I lost a bit of weight. But I'm cool. I'm good, I'm good shape. I just got to eat a bit more a bit more rubbish. But I'll, don't worry. It's going to soon happen. Absolutely. What were you like as a kid, mate? I was pretty quiet. I'm the eldest in my family, so I'm much older than my brother and sister. And then I had my dad's two brothers live with us, younger brothers, and my mum's two younger sisters live with us. And they're substantially older than me, so I, I had no one to hang out with. So I used to just hang out with myself. I just be quiet, pretty quiet kid, talk to myself, play games under the house. I used to, my mum always had the radio on, like 24 hours a day. And she used to sing all the time. And I used to follow my, I'd get under the house and follow my mum around the house. Wherever she was singing, I could knew who she was. And I would sit under the house. I remember it. And I used to play with trucks and shit like that. Old school. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I said, just follow around the house. I remember it. Uh, when mum's in the kitchen, I would get under the house in the kitchen and play with my trucks. You know, in those days, you had houses on, we had an old timber house on a stilts, you know, like uh, so you could fit under there. Yeah, cool under there too. Yeah, well, no, and no one worried about hurting yourself or spiders or anything like that. You, you get out of the house, you're right, okay. Yeah, up a tree, under the house, yeah, whatever. Yeah, up a tree, totally, yeah. Come home when the streetlights come on. That's 100%. Mark, dinner's ready. <laughs> and it was night and I'd run home. What was your childhood like? I had a good childhood. I was, I was lucky. I got two loving parents, you know, like stayed together, which is unusual these days, I guess, but they stayed together the whole time. I had a young brother and sister. Mum and dad weren't strict. But they were good role models for me. Dad worked really hard. Mum worked really hard. I was pretty much allowed to do whatever I want, so to speak. You know, I wasn't a bad kid. Did well at school. I, I didn't like school. I didn't hate it. I just went to school. I, I loved sport. That was my big thing, like playing footy. Life was simpler then, Gus. I have to be honest, it was much simpler. Like, you know, we didn't even have a television until I was 12. We didn't have a phone until I was 14 in the house. Mm. Today, kids would be fried. 
if they didn't oh. have a TV or a phone or yeah. a screen. Yeah. But, you know, I entertained myself, had a bike and a footy. That was it. That's all you needed. And a park down the road, pretty simple. Love it, though. It's the best. Yeah. I remember my life being like that too. The cicadas started to scream, so up the tree we went, Yeah, popped in a, a shoebox and taken to school. We'd play forcings back, pool cricket, yeah. front yard cricket, and the Davenports, Andy Davenport, his mum would come out with like an onk, onk. That means he had to come home. Yeah. There was a bell and there was a ring. So we all had our own, who's that? Okay, you got to go home. Between five and six. Yes, it. Get in the bath, have yeah. something to eat, yeah. get a telly in bed. We'll share the bath. I get out of the bath. Someone else in the family get in the bath and somebody, and we all have a bath because we didn't have a shower or nothing. But we got a shower later on, but showers weren't a thing. Baths were the go. It was a good, simple life. I mean, I lived out in the west suburbs. I mean, yeah, there's a bit of drama at the school I went to, but we had a house I wear around the corner, next street around the corner for me. I'm really lucky. I had such a good, stable upbringing and it helps when, as you get older. You've got a big smile on your face as you're telling those yeah. stories and remembering stuff. Great stuff. I mean, like, we had things go on, you know, like, not in my family, but, like, externally with other kids and, you know, there's a few gangs. And, and I got a bit of mischief when I got a bit older, 15, 16, I was in a gang. And it wasn't such a, to be honest with you, for me, I mean, maybe I shouldn't have been in it, but my parents didn't know about it. But for me, it wasn't such a big deal because it's just what everyone was doing, you know, fighting and stuff. But it wasn't like guys getting shot or stabbed or anything. We were just fighting. Yeah. You know, like, and there were a few rules, you know, you didn't kick someone on the ground. It sounds silly, flippant, but there were rules. And and the gangs were sort of like fighting each other at the back of Belmore Oval. Yeah, and there'd be cops that come and they'd grab hold of you and they you know, say they're going to tell your parents and they tell your dad and your dad would say you can't come to go to the next few games and you stay home and that was it. It, was, it wasn't a drama. It was just normal. You become such a successful bloke. Where did the penny drop for you to go, okay, I need to get back to school or I need to go to uni or whatever it might be because you can't keep going along fighting and blah, blah, blah. Where did the switch flick well, for you? Well, my mum's Irish, my mum's Greek. And, How uh, did they meet, by the way? Uh, in my dad's father's cafe. Oh. So my dad's father came to Australia first with his elder son, Nick. Dad's one of six boys. And then after the war, World War Two. My dad's father brought his family to Australia because Greece was having a civil war. But by that stage, my grandfather already had established cafes and restaurants and uh, all these kids worked in them. And my mum needed a second job to support her two younger sisters who were quite a lot younger than her. She was working in dad's father's cafe and met mom in there. And she taught my dad to speak English and, uh, and they subsequently got married and everything. Where it happened or how it happened for me to sort of go to uni at least and not become a... I want to become a brickie, play footy for Canterbury. I mean, I was in all the rep sides. All I want to do is go and play with blokes like Graham Musil. We're on the same team. I just want to play first grade one day. In those days, you know, my idols were Les Johns and Kevin Ryan, both Canterbury players, and I just want to be like them. I didn't know anything about professionalism. I didn't know about lawyers or accountants or architects. I didn't know none of that sort of stuff. I did well on the HSC, and my mother dragged me up to the university and enrolled me. She enrolled me. Really? Yep. So she couldn't say, you go and do it. She'd get, come with me. No, I'm coming with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to this university in Kensington. I never heard of Kensington. I didn't know where it was. And I uh, went to Kensington and she took me in there and she enrolled me and she enrolled me in a commerce law degree. And uh, I was lucky enough to do well in the high school certificate, like I did quite well. And, uh, and I got scholarships and all that sort of stuff. So... I didn't even apply for this degree, but I got in uh, and uh, somehow she got me in. And, and then the cops were there. The cops were 
like on the campus on enrollment date and they were enrolling young people to go and do a degree and then join the police force. And so she made me go down to this booth where the cops were and uh, <laughs> do an interview with, with the police. I said, what for, mate? She said, well, they'll pay you. You can work for the police and go and do a law degree and become a police prosecutor or something like that. I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, so I went to the interview and then I had to go down to Goulburn Street where the college was for the police and be interviewed by a cop down there. And I went down there for this interview and uh, I said, oh, you know, well, you know, do I? And he said, well, you have to go on the beat and wear a uniform. I said, mum, there's no way I'm going to be wearing a police uniform. <laughs> I said, I will never have another friend in my life. I said, so my mum did that. And I, I, so she said, well, okay, you got to work. You got to get a job. She said, because you need more than the scholarship money. And they had a bursary to pay for the books. But she said, you've got to live. How, how are you going to afford to pay petrol or whatever? So I went and got a job in a factory. That's how I paid my way through uni. I did that and I did the chef's course and worked in a, a restaurant as an assistant cook. I wasn't a chef, I was just a cook. Mm. But I did a course. Yeah, I did whatever I could. But mum, that was mum. I wouldn't have done that, Gus. I would have definitely just become a brickie or gone work for Rothmans or something like that if I hadn't played footy. That sort yeah. of was my thing. Yeah. Your mum sounds amazing. Oh, she passed away a couple of years ago from MD, but she, my dad's still alive, but they're both amazing. I didn't realize the importance of what it was she was doing, but she said, I, I know, you know, look, your father worked three jobs. She worked at the place called Three Swallows Hotel up in Yaguna in those days. She said, I don't want you doing that. You know, you've got to do something different. Mm. And uh, mind you, Bricky's probably do pretty well these days and builders and stuff like that. Mm. But in those days, that wasn't the case. And she put me on this trajectory, which I don't think she knew where it was going to lead to, but. Yeah, she was smart, well-read, ambitious. You know, she come from a music family, all musicians. I love music, which is why I play piano right through to the HSC. Mm. And I was so glad the day I moved out when I was 18. When I started getting moved out because I couldn't get there from punch bowls too hard. I stopped playing the piano. I thought that was terrific because mum made me play the piano my whole life. <laughs> you were successful enough whilst I were young enough to see that you made a success of yourself. All of us want to be loved and respected and admired by our parents. Was that a big thing for you? Did you have a moment with your mum and dad where they went, wow, you've done well, son? Yeah, it's, it's funny, Gus. I never thought much about it. When I sold the wizard business and uh, I was 48 and I'm 65 now, so I sold the wizard business and I'm 48. Mum wrote me a letter about three weeks later. My mother is a prolific letter writer still, or was up until the, to the time she died. It was a beautiful letter. I still have it. And it was a long letter saying that, look, I've never wanted to tell you, I don't want you to get a big head. I never wanted to tell you how proud of you, Dad and I. And Dad didn't write anything really very much. But I waited a couple of weeks until after the sale and all that, all the stuff's all died down. What was the number for people who are listening who don't, who don't remember that sale? What was the number of- The amount of money? The amount of money, yeah. It was a lot. It was close to half a billion. Okay. In uh, 2004. Yep. So that's probably the biggest private sale in Australia's history. Even by today's standards, it's multi-billion dollar value. And I did sell it to the world's largest company and it did make page two of the Wall Street Journal, like a big article. What was on page one? Uh, well, it was all the usual stuff about what's going to be on page two and three and four and five. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. the Wall Street Journal. And I, but I never, look, I never really got how important it was. It was the biggest acquisition that General Electric had ever made in the mortgage industry. They bought $19 billion worth of assets from me, me and Kerry. They also bought liabilities with it too, but that's why it was only half a billion. But like, still, I don't want to underplay it, but I was never really conscious of all that stuff. I was never doing it to make money. 
I was never doing to think I could make that sort of stuff. It was never my thing. I was just about, I want to lend money to people. How good is it? I'm sticking it up there. I'm sticking up the banks and <laughs> taking on Aussie home loans. Like, you know, it was always, it was the game for me and uh, the excitement of the game and the fun of it. And uh, I was just then, and I still am, the same boy who was under the house following my mum around, listening to the way she was singing. I mean, mm. I was a little bit absent, but not absent, if you know what I mean. And mum wrote me this long letter telling me how proud she was and she always knew that I was going to do something like that, blah, blah, blah. And I read it and you know, I thought it was great and I put it away. And then about six months after she did, I was clearing some stuff out of my house, as you do, and uh, I found the letter where I kept it and um, I read it again and had much more impact on me after her passing because, you know, you start to reflect. I was not someone who reflected on things. Mm. I'm not a reflect. Always looking forward? Always looking to do what I'm doing now or tomorrow. Okay. Never thinking about what I've done or and or just re-examining what I'm doing. It just move forward. And maybe that's one of the reasons I don't get too anxious or stressed out. A lot of people overanalyze what's going on and that can be a bit scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's confronting sometimes. Why am I doing this? What else could I be doing? You start, there's a thousand possibilities. Brings up lots of doubts when you think like, and you all think negatively, don't you? Well, then you think about, well, then how am I relative to Gus Wallen? I mean, how am I relative to blah, blah? Then you start building relativities out. And I was only having this discussion yesterday with one of my colleagues here about our brain is built to build mathematical models, but we don't realize they're mathematical models, but they are mathematical models. And we are modeling all the time in a comparative sense. We're building comparative models all the time. We're comparing ourselves to sets of data. Much worse today because there's much more data available. Mm. And we do get that off Instagram. Instagram's data to our brain. Our brain just sends Instagram. Someone who's doing really well, my age, 25, um, they've got a house, they're killing it, they've got 50,000 followers or 800,000 followers, or whatever. I've got 2,000, I haven't got a house, I'm paying rent. My brain builds a mathematical model, says, relatively speaking, you're doing shit house. I think that one of the problems we have is one of my strengths has been in terms of my success is that I don't do that. And instinctively, I just don't do it. I don't purposely not do it. I Mm. instinctively don't do it. Mm. Since more recently, I've actually sat down and started to examine why I don't do it and how important it is not to do it. So now I purposefully don't do it. And I think the people who have some difficulty with anxiety relative to where they stand in society Maybe they need to sit back and say, am I doing this? Am I model making? I have to say, like, I'm a mad believer. in. I love mathematics and science. That's my passion and my hobby. You know, I did a master's degree in mathematical modeling. So I have, you know, builder for financial markets and stuff. That's what Wizard was all about. I mean, everyone thinks I was the front of Wizard and the advertising guy. I wasn't. I mean, I was, but I wasn't the brains behind that. I had Kerry and Gingell and all those sort of people doing that. That's their thinking for me. I was the guy who worked out the funding model. So I was the guy who made sure we had enough money that we could go to the American markets and borrow a billion dollars every six weeks in US dollars or billion dollars in Europe in euros or pounds and bring back to Australia and convert it. And that was my thing. I did the mathematical modeling because that's my area of expertise at the time. And I took the view that, like, to be frank with you, that in terms of mathematical modeling, I know there is no such thing as an accurate model. And it, like we've just gone through with COVID. Everyone's going, the modeling says. Modeling says what you input. Modeling is sort of ubiquitous. The way you do a model is the same for every mathematical problem. It's the inputs and the assumptions you make that input the variables you put into the model. You can never put all the variables in the model. It's impossible. Mm. There's millions of variables. The variables that you might want to put in, for example, to say you know, what COVID outbreak will look like is so broad and so expansive, 
it's out of control. So what our government did is they cut out a lot of the variables, said people can't come to Australia, they just get rid of the variables, you yeah. can't travel from here to here, you can't travel from your house to there, and they eliminate variables, all the possibilities, then they've got a certain defined number of variables and they input a few other variables to make sure the outcome is the outcome they want from the model. Right. So look, if I'm a person who's 25 years of age, whatever, and I'm trying to build a model as to where I stand in society, how good I'm going or bad I'm going relative to everybody else, then if I want to build an accurate model, I've got to put in every single variable. Instead of looking at the person who's the one in one million person who's killing it, mm. I should be putting in that model in my brain, but I don't because it's a subconscious thing. I should be putting in all those people who are my age, with my skill base, in my passionate area, with my background, with my amount of money that I've got in my pocket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and build a model around that and then compare myself to those people. Yeah. That's a proper model. You may not be going so bad after that. Yeah, you're probably going okay. Yeah, yeah. But we don't do that because we don't understand how our brain works. And we never slow down enough in this world to actually have that proper discussion or be that proper, you know, solution making because we just rush from one thing to another. We misconnect and disconnect everywhere. And that's where a lot of younger people are today. As I said, I was lucky. I didn't have all those inputs when I was 25. I just had myself to deal with. Yeah. If they take a step back and just think for a moment, Stop trying to pitch myself against everyone else. Just play my own game. Yeah. And just keep driving towards one goal or maybe two goals. Just mm. play my own game. I think that's a big part of the solution. I think that's great advice. Great advice. Mark, we jumped from sort of... Sorry about that, mate. No, that's good. No, I'm happy you did. So your mum's there. I love the fact your mum took you to, to enroll you at uni. That makes me... Yeah, like a little kid. In you go and then down to the cops and you work out, okay... You then jump to selling a part of your company for a lot of money. What happened in between? Like how many good days, bad days? How much learning did you make from coming out of uni and actually being in a position with Wizard to, you know, make all that dough? Well, I, I came out of uni when I was my first degree. I was finished when I was 20. Um, I got my first degree at 20. And then I was doing the second part of my degree at night. So um, did, you, did you enjoy uni? Did you enjoy the learning? Uh, I was just doing it. Ticking a box. Mum sent me there and I was doing it. And, <laughs> you don't uh, mess with your mum. No, no. Well, yeah, but it's, she wasn't like that, but she was like just strong. And I just did it. Do I enjoy it? I didn't really make many friends there, to be honest, because it was all like Kensington University. Like There was kids from Waverley and Cranbrook and all those rich schools. And like I just didn't fit in. I didn't have many friends. I made a couple of mates, but not really. I wasn't in a hurry to get out. I wasn't in a hurry to stay. I must say I made some mistakes. My very first... So I'm doing commerce law, right? So things I have no idea about. I didn't do economics at school. I did Latin. I did history, English, math, science, music. Like I did th things totally unrelated to what I was doing at uni. And I always was pretty lucky at school. I, I always managed. I study before the exam and I get through and do well. So I didn't go to any lectures. First half of the really? first semester, right? Didn't get, and no lectures. And, and we're doing s subjects like economics and you know, business law or shit like that, which I knew nothing about. You have to do four subjects a, a semester. And I failed two subjects. I never failed in my life. And I, failed, I got shocked in my life. I got a letter from the university that says, you've got to do those two subjects along with the next four subjects. So you do six subjects in the next semester. If you fail the two subjects again, you lose all your bursary and your comp scholarship and all this shit. And like, whoa, I, I shit myself. So uh, I then started going to lectures. And that it probably would help, would it? And yeah, I, I, like I killed it. The next, you know, <laughs> yeah. I got HDs and distinctions and stuff like that. That was it. And I thought, okay, now I know what to do. 
But I actually, when I look back at it, I was a bit depressed. So I went from a structured environment at school. So I went to a Catholic school in Bankstown, very structured, you know, played footy. Everything was structured. Like I went to footy train in the afternoon. I played footy, you know, that sort of stuff to a totally unstructured environment where they don't know who I am. No one knows who I am. They don't know whether I'm there. I thought, how good is this? Um, <laughs> and people used to smoke, smoke joints those days on the library lawn. Like I had a bit of a go at that. Um, it was pretty cool. Like it was, was love in the air in Australia? Love was on the library lawn and uh, it was big. <laughs> were, were you not ugly, Mark? Did you, did uh, well, you go okay bit, with the ladies? I had a bit of luck. <laughs> I had a bit of luck. <laughs> but, you know, like I'd never really smoked a joint and like then all of a sudden, you know, people were offering to you. Know, you know, it was just like going across the joint and that's what was happening. I lost my discipline. I lost my structure, probably a better way of putting it. But I got it back. And then for a period of time, I just cruised and went and got jobs, worked in accounting firms, became a partner of a big accounting firm, worked at a law firm straight after that, worked in a law firm for six or seven years, got out of that, got into property, started doing a lot of property developments with a mate of mine. I went from 21 to 40 in and out of professions where I was on the professional looking after the client. And I had lots of interesting clients. Like I had some very interesting clients, well-known people in all sorts of, doing all sorts of aspects of all sorts of work for them. <laughs> and it was uh, the, the mad 80s, mate. And, you know, I saw what happened in the 80s. Alan Bond was a client. John Spalvins was a client from Adelaide Steamship Group. These high flyers, uh, Abe Goldberg was a, a client from Speedo and you know, all those various other companies that he owned, all of whom crashed. Some went to jail, some escaped and went back to left Australia, never to be seen again. There were inquiries. I mean, the 80s was the maddest time corporate life ever. Like it was unbelievable what could happen. I was only young in my late 20s and 30s, but still to have experience that was unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was Rafferty's rules. It was all about show me way around the law. Don't tell me how to comply with it. Yeah. These days it's about how do I comply with the law? But those days was about, no, how do I not comply with law? That was the thought process. Yeah. And I became quite good at it. And, <laughs> uh, and I was, it was just fun. It wasn't because I thought I was breaking law because I wasn't. I was just saying this, the law doesn't cover this part. This is something you can do. And the fun for me was the challenge of doing it. It was, it, I got excited by it. Finding a way for me was exciting. You know, a bit of legislation would be presented to me. Then I'd find a way around it. Then the legislation would get amended because we found a way around it. Our firm was famous for this. And then, and we're a big firm and a big well-known firm. And then the legislation would change to get around the amendment that we'd find a way around the amendment. It was, <laughs> it was a game. It, it wasn't because I was, I, that wasn't my way of thinking, but, but it was a game and it was fun. The 80s was like that. It was crazy. And I'm glad I got to experience it. I mean, it would never exist today. You couldn't do what you did in the 80s today, but but again, there are no phones, there's no mobiles. People used to go to lunch on Friday and never come back till midnight, you know. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was an unbelievable time. But it took me all that period though, Gus, I was trying to work out what I'm doing, who am I, where can I make a difference, as opposed to I was just being transactional in those days. I mean, I never thought to myself, can I change the way things are done in this country for people to borrow money for the future. I never used to think about making a change or making a difference. I was just a transactional guy. So, Mark, can you fix this up? Do this, go fly here or for this client, go and do this. I mean, I, I probably went between 28 and 32, I probably went overseas 
got flown overseas to all parts of weird and wonderful parts of the world, Monte Carlo, Jersey Islands, Bermuda, Hong Kong, everywhere, uh, London, Paris, New York, 30 times. Stayed at the best hotels in the world. I didn't pay for anything. Clients pay for everything. I took it for granted. I never realized. I mean, I don't even do that today. I mean, but it, what I got exposed to was incredible. Mm. Like it was unbelievable. Like when I think back, but I didn't know at the time. I didn't realize. Sounds awesome. It was. It was. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, but I had no, again, I had no real appreciation. I was still Mark under the house. I was just, it was in my own little world. Yeah. I, like I would go to New York. Wouldn't even go for a walk outside of the place. They'd just go to the hotel, do go to the office hotel, office hotel, fly back to Australia. I wouldn't think. Well, then we, me and James had a business in India in 2005. We had a, uh, a lending business in India. So General Electric, James and I had a 60-40 deal in India where we had 40%, they had 60%. And we had you know, 500 staff in India. We were a big lender in India. All my staff used to come from Australia to get seconded into India to work. And everyone went to all these places, you know, they'd come over for three weeks and they'd take a weekend off and they'd go to other cities. You know, our head office was in Delhi, well, a little place outside Delhi called Kogoan. I would just stay in the hotel, go to that. I would never, I never traveled around India. You never almost, saw that incredible I never country. saw, I never saw anything else. They went to Taj Mahal and they went everywhere. You know, went the all these gates places. of India. Yeah, they went everywhere. I never did it because I just didn't think it through. I mean, I was just more interested in what I was doing at the time. And to be honest, all I wanted to do was get back to Australia because my kids wanted to get back on time for the weekend footy on Saturday. So I'd go Monday to Friday and fly overnight and be back here Saturday morning. And again, I never appreciated the opportunity I had until many, many years later. Many years later. But nonetheless, I did experience some pretty cool places in my life. I love the fact that you were focused on getting back for footy on the weekend. Yeah. Well, that was my thing. My, all my boys played rugby union for school on Saturdays and then rugby league for the Clavelli Crocodiles or the Wombats. They Different ones play different teams on Sundays. For me, the biggest thing was standing on the opposite side to all the parents that I knew and watching them play. And it was ferrying them around on Saturday to all the various places they had to play. And then Sunday, they usually played at the one place. It was, I have to be honest, it was one of the best, to me, that was the best thing of my weekend and the best thing of my life at the time. Therapy. Just stand there watching the kids play footy. Why on the other side of the... Oh, I can't stand listening to parents, all the shit they talk about and, uh, you know, saying all weird things about their kids and, you know, everyone got a prize and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, like I just want to watch my kids play footy and the team play footy. I didn't want to listen to all that. And also, especially when we used to play some of the rugby league sides at Redfern, occasionally you could get a little heated on one side. So I thought, Mark, get on the other side, mind your own fucking business and don't get caught up in all that uh, sideline stuff between the parents. I got caught up in a grand final at Redfern Oval for my daughter's boyfriend the last season that we could play before COVID and uh, it was all very friendly until you know the game got close and then all of a sudden I was Gus from the Grill team or Gus who's a Rooster fan and yeah yeah no totally it was really weird how quickly it changes and oh. my mates go we just let's go couldn't watch the last ten minutes because it just just got really tribal, aggro tribal and aggro and I hate yeah. I hate that well I I I don't react respond very well to it and I mean I guess also just the basic fundamentals come out of me when it's like that and you know and i'm not gonna i won't walk away from anything you know i'll stand my ground i'm not gonna do anything but i'll stand my ground yeah and uh i remember one time i was at redfin some bloke i was on the other side and where the school the old school board was and uh this bloke 
come out and he started yelling. He's yelling at the referee, like abusing the shit out of the referee, guy from the other side. And uh, I said, mate, chill. Like this kid's like abusing, really bad, bad, you know, like pretty heavy. And he, he started staunching me a little bit and then uh, and I just ignored him and then he came over and he said, you know what, if I wasn't out on bail, he said, I'd smack you right in the mouth. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I said, mate, if you smack me right now, you'd be going straight back in. You won't be out on bail. <laughs> yeah. I taunted him a little bit. That's sort of why I used to stand away from all that because it's, uh, yeah, that, that's sort of untidy when it's it comes good to, to It's good to know, you know, your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I didn't want to get into that sort of special in front of the kids. <laughs> Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shore and Partners Financial Services. Shuram Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shuram Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shurampartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shuram Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. Now let's get back into the episode. You don't talk about your personal life that much is there a reason for that like I don't talk about the marriages and the, you talk about your kids because you're very proud of them but what, what is that scenario and marriages uh, i had many um and well you're I'm, not very is that the one thing you're not very good at yeah unsuccessful um <laughs> well yeah maybe look i'm still mates for them all i'm not going to say i picked the wrong people i'll never say that they're, they're mothers of my kids kids come from different mothers but it's probably me to be honest it's Probably the common, obviously the common denominator is me. Well, they say they say if you have one divorce, you know that can be either party. If it becomes two, you start you, even your mates start well, questioning three. you. Three, yeah, then it's, it's probably me. it's on you. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like, I, look, I, I accept that these days. Probably is me. I say I'm pretty difficult to be around to live with. I'm pretty particular with what I do and I don't like. I maybe haven't been as empathetic towards other people's needs. Not because I'm ignorant or uh, don't care. I do care, but I don't pick up on things that well. Yeah, I, don't, I just don't pick up on things that well um, in terms of how someone is. It's not that I'm not interested, although sometimes I'm not, but it's not that I'm not interested in terms of someone who has a relationship with me, but I'm probably preoccupied with something else. I've had to learn to become much more interested and look for the cues over the last couple of years. Otherwise, you'll end up being by yourself forever. Because you keep making the same error, if it is an error, the same outcomes will occur. You just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, I've even had to become that way in relation to my businesses, the people who work for me. I was maybe five, ten years ago, say, started to realise that I can't be the way I used to be in my office environment. I'm very straightforward. I say what I think. You can't be that way because it hurts people, offends people. People get offended for reasons I don't understand because I don't mean anything personal to them. Yeah, the world's changed. It's changed. Yeah. Well, I've got to change probably really importantly and I've had to change. So I've had to become, develop, train, practice, being more empathetic towards how someone may react to what I've said. Mm. Occasionally I still well, I could get tired or I'm, I'm not on my game. I can still fall into that thing, but uh, that category of what I used to be like. But I didn't realise that stuff. So I, I didn't know I was doing that until someone told me. I mean, there was a thing at uh, Wizard, they used to call it a boring uh, you're going to get a borosing. I got a borosing. I didn't even know about it, but everyone used to call it a borosing. It was where I called you in my office and told you what I thought of you. Not, a, I didn't. It wasn't aggressive or anything, but you know, tell you in a plain English sort of way, which is sort of one of the reasons why they offered me the job as the apprentice guy, because that's Trump. And if I look at Trump today, 
That's what he did. But if I look at Trump myself, look at him, I would say, mate, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. But then all of a sudden I thought, shit, hang on. They thought I was the same because I wasn't looking at myself because, you know, Trump, he's a bit weird. Like yeah. he says inappropriate things. <laughs> and maybe I was saying inappropriate things. Well, I, I obviously did. And uh, so I've had to think about that. And that goes right to the core of my how I was even in my relationships. I would say something that would be hurtful to somebody and they might feel undermined. Especially when they love you and adore you. I imagine that's exactly how they were feeling. And when you get someone who loves you and adores you say something cutting, that's hard to come back from. Yeah, I wouldn't do it to hurt them though because I don't like to hurt people. I mean, I don't like You didn't realise it. I didn't realise I didn't realise it, it was like that. And a lot of times they wouldn't say anything back to me because they were concerned about, well, I might respond back, you know. So, And I would say it as I'm walking out the door or as soon as I get in the house. You know, like when I was selling Wizard, it took me a year to do the deal. I was so obsessed. I get obsessed with things, but I was so obsessed with it that I would leave home at some mornings at four o'clock in the morning to, to work on it and get home at 11 o'clock at night. And I wouldn't eat, but I'd just fall into bed. Some nights I'd stay there and sleep on the floor. I'd sleep on the floor of the office. And pretty much what I did is I completely ignored my wife. I was married at the time. I basically, like, she didn't exist. And I didn't realize because I just thought she was fine. The kids are at home, but, you know, three little kids, all 18 months apart. I'm mean, driving each other, you know, like hard work. Yeah. You know, three boys, wild as hell, like, fuck. And my oldest boy had come back to Australia. From, his mum came back to Australia. And so he was living with her. It was like, mate, she would have my son from a, another marriage. But I never for one second thought, wow, how hard must this be for her? And yeah, I, well, I maybe think, I should give her a hand. Yeah, I never thought for one second. I thought, no, you know why? Part of the problem is I came from – Two parents who were so competent, so competent at everything they did in raising us and raising my mum's sisters and my mum's brothers and dad's brothers and, and all of us as well. Plus, we had a foster kid. Mum had a foster kid. So everything just happened. Or maybe that I just assumed maybe everyone was like that, mm. like in the back of my mind. Mum had jobs at night. My dad would come home from his second job that he worked on after the factory at six. We'd all sit and have dinner. Then at 7.30, my mum would go and work at the Three Swallows Hotel. Mum would come home at 11 o'clock at night from the Three Swallows Hotel. And at midnight, I would hear Dad get up and go and do the milk run before he started his factory job. And this has went on for years. Wow. So I, and we all got raised and every, nothing. We didn't miss out on it. Like, you know, like I, mean, I had parental input into everything I did. Mm. Maybe I just thought everything was the same. You know what I mean? Like mm. I just thought the world was the same because I didn't get exposed to anything else, just my own family. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no one talked about their families in those days. That may, I often would try to work out why I was like that and, and maybe that was it. As you talk, so many more questions pop into my head. Were you able to give your mum and dad, you know, in inverted commas, a lovely house or something as you were, you know, getting becoming more successful? Did you have a day where you just wrote a check and said, there you go, mum, or there you go, dad? I remember you getting up at midnight. I remember you doing three jobs. Did you have that moment? With no, them? they wouldn't let me. Um, oh. So they're, they're fiercely independent. But, you know, we started off living in Punchbowl. Then mum and dad were very ambitious people and worked hard. And they went from Punchbowl to, to Sylvania, from Sylvania to Neutral Bay, Neutral Bay to Mossman. And they've got a great house in Mossman today. They live in a beautiful house in Mossman. Like, you know. So he got there anyway. He got there on his own. And I would always buy trips from him, always pay for him to go to my farm. And I'd send him up to my farm, buy the airfares. And put. I would do whatever I could, which wasn't giving them money. But giving them an opportunity to have yeah, an experience. Chance, yeah, totally, totally. But their thinking is this house is for our kids. 
this big house in Mossman. We're building it, so we want to give it to our kids. Yeah. Don't you give me anything. Okay. I like that. When you hire someone, is it based off their resume or is it sort of based off that the vibe that you get from them? Well, to get the interview with me as opposed to the pre prior to me. So there's a process. There's a process. Before you see them. So that's CV. But then when I see them, I mean, it's more a vibe I get. I'm, I'm trying to suss out what I've about who the person is. And I, I don't have any particular process of doing it, but I ask them things about footy or interests and, and I just try to see their responses. I look for tone and speed and language. I like to see their background. I like to know what, where they come from. And there are questions I know you're not allowed to ask, but I ask them anyway. Um, <laughs> just to see, they don't have to answer them. I say, you don't have to answer this question, but like, I'm going to ask it. And I want to see how much adventure they have in themselves. Yeah. I mean, pretty much anyone can be sort of learn on the job or become really skilled, I think. But it's more about their personality, their attitude, and you know, their eagerness to learn and eagerness to become better. I'm interested in having people who want to get really good at their job. Yeah. And don't mind me inputting as to how that will be. And I know I'm lucky now people want to work for me because they think I'm some sort of sage and I'm going to give them some sort of advice, which I'm not. <laughs> but at the same time, that's a good thing for me because a really important thing in business or in, just in life generally is learning how to learn. Because it's, I mean, people say, why should I go to university? I don't know. But maybe if going to university gives you a degree, which is useless, that's one thing. But if going to university gives you a useless degree, but it actually teaches you how to learn, you learn how to learn. That's important. Yeah. And it's about what do I read? What do I absorb? How do I absorb it? What conclusions do I draw from that material? How do I research the right material? Like, you know, right now, the big conspiracy theories around floating around the world about where COVID came from. Was it Bill Gates that started it? Or, you know, was it Joe Biden or Joe, Fauci or whatever? You know, whatever. All these conspiracy theories. And the internet is a place where unless you don't know how to learn, you can be in trouble. Yeah. Because you'll learn the wrong fucking shit. Yeah. And you will become obsessed. You can become obsessed with people who are urges, who are trying to get you on board with them about something for which there's no rational basis for or no reason for you to believe in it. Because you know, there's two things in the world. I either know something from knowledge because it's been proven, it's mathematical or it's there's it's been working in a certain way for a long time, so it's proven, or I believe in it, God. I don't know if God exists or not, therefore I have to make a choice, do I believe in God? Do mm. I choose to believe in God? A lot of people today are believing in these conspiracy theories where they have an opportunity to actually know whether it's true or not, but they don't know how to learn to learn to know it. Mm. And that's a really important thing that tertiary institutions and being in a work environment where someone can teach you how to learn. That, and that's so important as a life skill, learning how to learn and not get led by the nose by people who are trying to basically are fucking rorters, mate. And the world is full of them today. And it gets young people, particularly gets them into trouble. I and mean, I have a mantra, and one of my boys has got a tattoo on his chest, another one's got it on his leg. And whenever I used to get on an airplane, and I was going overseas, my boys be left here. I always always send them a text. And I'd say, I send it, and at the end of my text, I'd tell them how much I love them and all that sort of stuff. And at the end of the text, I would say, work, because working's good for the soul. Play, because you need to balance your play out. Fight for what's worth fighting for, and love for what's worth loving, and always believe in something. And that is a very simple mantra which I live my life by. That's how I live my life by.
So how do you learn, mate? Well, when I was younger, I, I was more a visual learner. So I remember what I saw. So it was much more powerfully embedded into my brain. And, it may, and that's, that'd be, there'd be some scientists be able to come and tell you there's a reason for that. You know? mm. I did study NLP, neurolinguistic programming, and uh, got to understand the importance of NLP. And I have worked on my auditory ability a lot more. So I'm actually becoming quite good at hearing stuff and absorbing it and understanding it so and and that's worked well for me to give them podcasts you know i'm talking i'm going back quite a while now to podcasts because i've been a podcast listener for a long time and i get a lot out of listening to podcasts and not seeing the person i haven't been great on the kinesthetic stuff which is the third part of neurolinguistic programming or learning through that process that's something i'm working on but that's maybe an instinct uh, not a natural thing in me i'm trying to work with my gut a lot of people are really good at understanding. But one of my sons is brilliant. His gut feeling is so good, so sharp. On point. On, it's ridiculous. But it's funny, when going through school, he had an issue with learning in a class. The blackboard and yeah, the yeah. Right, left to right had a problem. reading. He wasn't dyslexic, but he had a, a dyslexic issue when it came to absorbing what was being told to him. But he came very good in the gut. Yeah. still is, whereas I'm... Not that good there, but I've been working on my auditory ability. So how I learn is I, I read a lot. I, I'm a really big reader, but now I listen a lot too. And that's one of the great things about podcasts. This stuff, podcasts, etc. mate, I know you're a radio guy or you don't do radio that much anymore, but you are a radio guy. But radio is really heavily competed now, mate, you know, because the style of radio is in two or three-minute packages. I mean, I was on your show all the time. Yeah. And I, and I remember, just remember everything was a two or three-minute package and then it'd be an ad and I'd be out and you get the next dude in or the next topic. But now it's more 40-minute packages, you know, and it's, I reckon they're much more powerful. Yeah, I agree. I, I, love, I, and I, I enjoy love, it. I love a podcast as well. This was meant to be 40 minutes, but I think it's going to be a little bonus one because I haven't even got yet to your love of the roosters. And as a Rooster fan- well, we but, share it. Yeah, we share it very much. And we've been at games together. We've been good and bad, wins and losses. I'd like you to take us into the boardroom if you can. Nick Pilatus, obviously such a strong character, much love character. I think every third car sold in Australia now, he's got a piece of it. So very in intelligent man, very funny man, very successful. What's he like dealing with? At the board level? Yeah, can you be yourself and be as powerful as you are in real life in that boardroom or does no. he take on that? No, no, no. I'm there because of Nick Politis. So Nick asked me to join the board and I'm there because Nick asked me to join the board. And maybe I can share with you a view on boards. If you're the chairman of a board and or you're the most influential person in a business, you might be the biggest shareholder. In his case, he's not a shareholder, but he's the most influential person in our business, in our business of the Roosters, both at Leagues Club and at Footy Club. You make sure that you have a board that will be part of your vision. It doesn't mean we're all yes men or women, but we're going to be part of the vision. Otherwise, you're not going to select people who are going to be in conflict with you. Mm. So I know that's how it rolls. And that's my role on that board. It doesn't mean I won't say what I think, but I won't attack him and I won't joust with him. I'll go to the side and say, look, I... Some, I have a different view on that or something like that. This is my opinion. Yeah, this is my opinion. Yeah. But it's rare my opinion is different. Rare. So in the boardroom, I'm, I'm not an acolyte or beholden to the dude or whatever like that. But his research, his way of thinking, the results he's achieved, you'd be a brave person to take him on in a board meeting because he would spend far more time on anything than any of us do, like yeah. much more time. 
and he's been in it much, much longer than any of us have ever been. And he's much better connected than any of us are. He talks to Verlanders, he talks to every, he talks to everybody. Well, more importantly, they talk to him. And he's more powerful than anybody really understands. Not just in the car game, because he is probably the most wealthy and richest car guy privately in the world today. In the world, not just Australia, in the world. Mm. He's incredibly connected and knowledgeable about what he does in the footy world. And in our boardroom, he reigns supreme. And we all, and we're a good board, like in terms of individuals, we all experienced board people. And all of us, we don't defer. We listen to what he's got to say. And we go along, generally speaking, go along. But we, you know, we all have to vote on every resolution, every meeting. It's strictly run. We hold a board meeting every month, every month. It doesn't matter what month it is. We hold a board meeting every month. If you don't turn up, he gets the shits, you know, and you get marked as being absent and it gets put in the annual report as being you not being there. So it's strictly run. None of us receive any money. None of us receive any benefits whatsoever. Zero. That We don't get a free beer. We don't get anything, nothing. And that's the way he wants it to be. And I like that. And when we have to sign our, you know, directors, no conflict stuff, we can honestly sign these things in that in a way if anything we all give money to the joint yeah we support the place financially and like we know we've just built a foundation i think all of us if not all of us most of us pull, all put 100 grand in each nick would have put in more and it's foundation for running academies for kids uh, to come through the process and yeah. you know looking after so Orb- orbo and uh, orbo. jake friend to be a part of that they are totally yeah and, i spoke uh, to them about putting our programs the tomorrow man tomorrow woman programs yep. in building mental fitness they can build the skills and the physical fitness and we can help them with the mental fitness stuff. So and I'm excited it, about and that. And it's, imp- it's an important thing for us to have a foundation. And uh, Nick is all about legacy, what he's going to leave. I and mean, he's 80, you know, like it's the legacy. He, the legacy he wants to put our club in is that, both leagues and footy, is that we have no debt. We have no debt. That's amazing. We yeah. have a lot of money in the bank and we own a lot of very valuable assets unencumbered. That's in the leagues club, and which supports the footy club. And the footy club makes a profit, which is pretty unusual. Yeah. And, well, it's beautifully uh, run, isn't it? And it's, okay. Because he runs it well. And he's got really good people like Joe Kelly, et cetera. They do a great job. Yeah. And it's taken a long time for him to build a business and a legacy that will survive after he's gone. And he's got great coaches in place. He's got great infrastructure in place. Great people. Everything. He's done all this. It's all his vision. And we're all helping him, but it's his vision. Yeah. We tow the line, we do what he wants us to do. And if he wants us to be on this committee or do on that committee or chair that or talk to someone, we'll do it. Like He just has to ask, ring up, talk to us. We'll, we'll all do it. And uh, we're all pretty connected in our own right so we can drag in resources that need to be dragged in or, you know, I'm there, I know about property. So, we, you know, if there's a property issue, he always passes by me first. You know, what, what are we going to do? He's built a good village around him. 100%. And yeah. that's what it's like to work for him. But he's built it. It's been his vision. Nick, to me is one of the biggest influencers influencers in my latter years, probably as much as Kerry has been in a different way, but very impactful in terms of what I've learned from him mm-hmm. about how to conduct myself. Everything he does is voluntary. He doesn't get, he's not doing it to have a big head or to appear somewhere. He doesn't want to be the chairman of the NRL. He doesn't want to be on the NRL commission. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be any of those things. He doesn't even want to be recognised. He doesn't want anyone to cheer him or say anything. He doesn't care whether even they know what he looks like. He's actually doing it for the members and the players and Rooster fans generally. It's quite amazing. It's quite an amazing thing. Yeah. God to, bless him. Totally. It's, it, we're lucky. 
that we have him. But it's quite an amazing thing for just to see and to watch. I don't know how we're going to uh, follow up once he does leave the chairmanship and or hopefully doesn't leave the planet. But I don't know how we'll ever replace or fill his boots. I, yeah, I just like the Sir Alex Ferguson at Man United, those sort of people are just yeah. hard to Well, you have to, to do something, them. but yeah. we'll never, never. You don't want to be the next one in, put it that way. That's a bit of a worry. Yeah. <laughs> Some quick fire stuff now. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Is there one player in particular that you're so proud of that you were part of bringing them to the to the club, to the Roosters? Freddie is for me. I mean, I was uh, I didn't bring him to the club, but I was a big sponsor of Freddie. Like I personally sponsored him for many, many years, and I watched his ups and downs. So Captain Origin not turning up to uh, you know something, then getting sacked, back page, and I just I watched Freddie go to being the wonderful person he is today mm. through all his trials and tribulations with every bit of talent that anyone could ever wish for, and come from a, an unusual background. So yeah, Brad Fittler. That moment he walked back to the Rooster fans, two thousand and two, head strap, yeah. blood after Villasanti. Yeah, after yeah, and that moment changed the whole game. He got totally. the forty twenty, and then we scored twenty one, twenty odd unanswered points. We interviewed him earlier, and uh, that was his moment too, where he just knew as captain he had brought the the trophy home yeah, for the, the uh, Villa. The gorilla put Freddie on his face, and then Morley squared up. About three tackles later. Yeah. That was so good. It was so good. <laughs> and then we just went bang, bang, bang. Yeah, beautiful. See, so yeah, go back to New Zealand. Do you pay your own bills? Like, do you know what your bills are? Like, I get an electricity bill. I go, okay, well, I put a circle around it. I'll get a little bit of a discount if I pay it by this date. What's your life like? Well, like I, I have a person who does that. Yep. But she has no authority to pay anything unless it first gets approved by me. Okay. Everything. Everything. So I get a whole list of things, and at Yellow Brick Road, all creditors get paid once a month, and you know, we we spend probably two hundred million a year in, in bills. Everything gets passed by me in a month, and I have to approve it. The creditors list. How long do you sit there with going? Okay, that's that bill six thousand three hundred. That's eight hundred dollars. You go through them all. Yeah, you're looking at me I like scan, you. I, I scan it for <laughs> unreasonableness, unusualness. Uh, I got pretty good at it. I just scan through. You know, okay. I, I I just look through and I go, I, I, things will stick out because I've been doing it for so long now. Yeah. I know what the run rate is. I know what we should be paying. I generally speaking, I know who we're going to pay at various quarters and various periods, particularly at Yellow Brick Road. Nothing gets paid unless I approve it. For me, it's just an okay or an approved. I mean, it's okay in my relation to my personal stuff and it's approved at Yellow Brick Road. Okay. So there is an order trial. Would you swap your life to be a heavyweight champion of the world in boxing? Or a champion at boxing of the world, not heavyweight because you're too slim? Good question. <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> That's my answer. Yeah, okay. What about to play rugby league back in the day for the Berries at Belmore or running out at the new Sydney football stadium in, in a couple of years' time for the Roosters? I wouldn't swap my life as it has been because I feel like sometimes in my business I am running out in front of the Yeah. <laughs> for, for your chosen thing, you are the captain yeah. of a premiership winning team. But the boxing one, uh, I, 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 that, that's a whole new level for me. I remember we went to a fight in North Sydney and you cleaned this bloke up. He did quite well in the first round yeah. and I think you were trying to work it out and in the end end of three rounds, it was all over and you beat him easy. But that night, I remember giving you a big cuddle. You were really hot and sweaty and you had your trainer there, one of the great trainers of all time, Johnny Lewis. And I've just never seen you so happy. Do you know what Johnny Lewis said to me in the, at the end of the first round? He said to me, son, if you don't fucking get in there and punch the shit out of this bloke, he's going to win on points. He said, you better go and knock him out, which is what I did. Yeah, you did. You did. <laughs>
Alrighty, these are the fast five to finish up, big fella. You've already given us your favourite quote, so that one's locked away. Your favourite holiday destination? It has to be Greece. My dad's village in the area from where he comes from in uh, Greece. It's not an island, it's a mountainous area. Just beautiful? Yeah, I just, in my heart, my heart loves it. It's your home. You say you're a big reader. Your favourite book? Oh, well, I don't read fictions, but I'm always reading science books. So I read American Scientific. Um, I'll read Nature Magazine. I'll, I, right now I'm reading a, a book called Weapons of Math Destruction, WND. I'm reading a book on the theory of time at the moment. Wow. Look at you. Handsome and intelligent. Favourite movie? Shawshank Redemption. What a flick. And your favourite charity, because Sean Partners and Earl Evans and Al have given me $10,000 for every one of our guests to give to their favourite charity. So who would you like to give it to and what would they do with that with that money? Uh, well, my, my, I have th- three charities. It's Police Legacy. You it's can split it up three ways yeah, if you yes, like. Yes, I've Police Legacy. I mean, I've been boxing for Police Legacy. You know, I'm their ambassador, boxing ambassador for the last 15 years or something. PCYC, which I'm the patron of Willem uh, Lou PCYC, which is a police citizens youth club. And St. Vincent's, uh, the Vincentian Village, which is which I've been looking after at Christmas time for the last since 1994, and I dress up like Santa Claus, or or sometimes my sons do. Depends on you how need to it put it probably a pillow. I put, I put a couple of pillows in it, and I give gifts out to all the people who are homeless who go and live in that particular centre. Usually, mothers with their kids. And I want to finish with one thing, say, Gus, you're a good man, mate. I mean, the way you dedicate your life to you really are, ha- have a dedication to this to looking after people who are far less fortunate than you have been and than me and a lot of your friends. I just wish there were more people like you. I wish I had more time to do it. I wish I had more desire to do it. I try my best and one of the ways I help out is I just give money basically. And uh, But to give your time and the effort and the thought that you give to it, that's totally commendable. And uh, I feel like I just didn't do justice by saying totally commendable. I can't think of words that describe properly. You are... Mate, you're a fucking champion, seriously. Thanks, Mark. Really. I mean, it's so good. And we need, well, we need more people like you, but we need you. So don't stop. I won't be stopping anytime soon. I'm a bit like you. I thank you for those very kind words, but I never get tired doing Gotcha for Life work. You know, where I, I do get tired at times doing other things, but we've got to get the suicide rate down to zero. Yeah. And the only way we can do that is by. You know, people supporting us, getting more facilitators into schools, into sporting clubs, into corporations. And if we don't do that, the suicide rate will stay the same. So we have to get it to zero. And having fun chats like this with you is wonderful. And Sean Partners have been great supporting Gotcha. So. They're a good mob, Sean Partners. Those boys are real good blokes. They're across the road from my office and they're champions. They are so generous, by the way. Oh, they've got hearts of gold. I remember bumping into Earl the first time and he said, I want you to come and see me next week. Here's my card. And he just got off a paddle at Collaroy. And I went, I wonder what that's about. And I rang him. And the first time he saw me, he said, we need more people like you. What can I help you with? And I said, well, can you look at my business, my foundation, and tell me if I'm doing it right? And secondly, I need money. That's really, I know it's coarse to say that. And he said, okay. So he looked at my books. He spread the whole sort of thought process and strategy out on a big board table and he just went through and looked at it, put circles around it, crosses through things. And we changed the way we did things. And then, you know, he's given us hundreds of thousands of dollars, which he knows will go into, you know, saving people's lives. Earl and Alan, the champions, as is the whole firm. Yeah. The whole firm. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Gus. Good on you. Well, that was Mark Burris, and what I loved about that was the fact that his mum dragged him down to university by the ear or by the scruff of the neck and say, hey, 
you're going down a wrong path, you need to go this way. And the fact that he's changed his life around is quite incredible and why I love him so much. Coming up next is Carl Stefanovic. A chat with Carl is an experience and one that I hope that you enjoy as much as I do. Obviously, he's well known for everything around Channel 9, going away from the Today Show, going back to the Today Show. What you will realise is Carl is a spiritual beast and one that hopefully you'll enjoy listening to as much as I did. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.